Welcome to Education Beat. I'm Ann Vasquez, CEO of EdSource. Wildfire and flood season is approaching in California, which means students could be affected by traumatic events in their communities. Schools often play a central role in helping students and families recover from trauma. When disaster strikes, they often provide food, shelter, and supplies. And in some cases, they also provide mental health support. Everyone of us as adults who work with children have the power to be that protective factor in any child's life. What's the best way for schools to prepare for natural disasters, shootings, and other traumatic events? And what's at stake? Here is this week's Education Beat with host Zadie Stavely. Marlene Wong's deep commitment to helping children recover from trauma is rooted in her family history. When I was about 12 years old, I was sitting with my grandmother. It was a hot summer day in Central Valley, California, and she began to talk about her childhood. And her secret was that she had been sold as a child when she was five years old. And she had been taken, separated from her family. And she remembered the moment when she looked at her mother and her mother said, you must go with this woman because she may be your mother now. And she never saw her mother again. She was taken by these strangers on a ship from Macau, where she was born, to Angel Island in San Francisco. And she became the child servant of this wealthy family. Marlene's grandmother never went to school. She grew up in in San Francisco Chinatown, and she saw a lot of racism. I don't think she ever called it that, but she was in restaurants where, as a child, uh, people would come in, kind of cowboy-type men, and they would drink and eat food, and then they wouldn't pay their bill, and they would shoot up the restaurant. And she would be terrified, hiding under a table, not knowing whether she would live or die. And it was compounded by the fact that she experienced the great earthquake in San Francisco. So it was disasters, it was violence, it was a new country, it was a terrible separation from her mother. Her life was an example of how you could have experienced every terrible thing, every adverse childhood experience, but that there was hope that with good people around you, you could find your way. So Marlene has dedicated her life to children's mental health. She studied social work in college and became one of the first scientists to research childhood trauma and PTSD. She's been identified by the White House as one of the preeminent experts in school crisis and disaster recovery. Early on in her career, she directed the mental health and crisis teams for Los Angeles Unified and helped L.A. teachers and students after the riots. Now, when a crisis happens anywhere in the country, the federal government often gives her a call. After the Oklahoma City bombing, Marlene flew in to help figure out how to help students and teachers recover. The superintendent and her executive staff sat down together. We met with them. We met with middle school and high school administrators. We met with teachers. We met with students. And in these groups, we asked the same question. Where were you when this occurred? How did it affect you? And what can we do to help right now? At one school near the federal building, 
everyone felt the impact from the bomb. It shattered the windows and, you know, broken up the bricks, etc. I mean, and it, it was like an earthquake for those who had experienced an earthquake. Uh, it was like a plane crash that they'd seen on television where everything was devastated. One particular woman, a lunch lady, stood out to Marlene. When Marlene asked her what she had done when the front of the building was shattered, she said, I ran to the first classroom that I could get to. I put my arms around as many babies as I could. She's talking about the little children. I gathered them up into my arms and I said, you don't have to be afraid because I'm here to take care of you now. What a woman, you know? This is the core of what psychological first aid is all about. Someone outside your family who is on your side who cares about you, and whose priority is your safety. This is Education Beat, getting to the heart of California schools. I'm Zadie Stavely. This week, how schools can help students recover from fires, floods, and violence. Marlene Wong has consulted with thousands of schools and other agencies on disaster response and school crises. She helped after the shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary and Columbine High School, and after the 9-11 terrorist attack. She's also helped schools dealing with wildfires. My colleague Carolyn Jones spoke with Marlene and her colleague Pamela Vona about the best ways for schools to prepare for natural disasters, as well as shootings and other violence. And she wrote about it for EdSource. Hi, Carolyn. Good morning, Zadie. So, Carolyn, tell me why you wanted to interview these two counselors. Well, in California, as you know, we're coming up toward wildfire season. And also now a lot of parts of California are contending with floods as well. And then, of course, violence, community violence, as well as school shootings are unfortunately almost a daily occurrence around the country, if not in California as well. And so I just started thinking, well, this is a really good time for schools to be thinking about the inevitable, really, which is how they're going to cope with disasters and help students and families and staff get through these uh, disastrous events. Okay. And so what did you learn from talking with them? Well, I learned a lot. I learned that even though, you know, these things are hard to predict, these women said that, yes, actually, these are predictable. It's inevitable that every school at some point or another is going to have to contend with some kind of disaster, whether it's a natural disaster or, or a violent event. And so they had some really good suggestions for how schools can prepare for these in advance and what the school's responsibility is during these events and how the school can really play a pivotal role in helping students and families recover. So tell me about some of the things that they told you that really stood out to you. Well, some really basic stuff that every school should have a safety plan, uh, an emergency plan. The U.S. Department of Education actually has on their website some tips and guidelines for schools to do this, to create this. Some really easy things, you know, get a communication plan together. How are you going to communicate with families um, and students? Is there a plan for online education? Let's say the school campus is going to be closed down for a while. How are you, you going to continue educating? Making sure you have a counseling plan. It, you know, do you have enough counselors? Uh, do you have enough school psychologists? Do you have a plan to contract with local agencies that could help um, in an emergency, such as the Red Cross? 
They talked about some districts in the United States have existing contracts with local disaster emergency agencies. So everything can kick into gear right away. Um, And also training teachers. Um, They describe teachers as first responders in a lot of these situations, you know, psychological first responders. So are you going to train teachers to help kids who are suffering from trauma or even PTSD? Marlene says that just one staff member stepping up and providing connection and support can make a huge difference. The story of the lunch lady in Oklahoma City has become central to much of Marlene's work since. She co-founded the Center for Safe and Resilient Schools and Workplaces with two other people, including Pamela Vona. Pamela says they bring up the lunch lady a lot in their trainings. Because teachers feel so helpless in these moments. They feel like, I do not know what to do. I do not know what to say. I'm not going to bring it up. And what's needed most in that moment is connection. And that's what they're most scared to initiate. And so when we're able to provide teachers with a set of skills that are really within their wheelhouse, there's so much more confidence and agency in their ability and I think in their willingness to be able to, whether it's something large scale or maybe a traumatic experience that one individual child is experiencing, we know that being able to make that connection is central to buffering the student. Being a safe adult, providing a sense of safety, consistency, predictability in that moment can really buffer a student from the long-term effects of the event itself. Marlene says the idea that one calm and optimistic role model makes a big difference for kids is backed up by research. We even went back to World War II and found research that was done by Anna Freud, you know, Sigmund Freud's daughter, who showed that the children whose parents were calm and optimistic and had a plan and instituted that plan every time the German planes bombed the city that they actually did very well. They did better than the children whose parents were highly emotionally reactive every time, who seemed to be disorganized every time, who whose emotions were chaotic and unpredictable. They didn't fare well. But in her research, what she even talked about was the children who were able to be sent away to relatives in the countryside, that the children who stayed with their parents, these calm and optimistic Adults did even better. Teachers and staff are also at risk for trauma, and they need support too. This was a lesson Marlene learned when she visited Louisiana, Texas, Alabama, and Georgia with the Secretary of Education after Hurricane Katrina. The teachers sacrificed everything. They literally, they lived at the school practically. They were there to hand out um, food, uh, clothing. Uh, they, they taught the kids. I asked one teacher, how, what did you do when, when your day ended? She said, I went to what was left of my house. It was a concrete slab on the shore. And I sat on it and cried. And then I went back to my FEMA trailer and got ready for the next day. And what we also learned from them is that the superintendents came back to the Department of Ed and said, you know, our teachers are getting sick. So they were able to sacrifice everything for Katrina, then Hurricane Rita, and then the dark water horizon oil spill. And what we learned is that if these events 
are cumulative and the stress becomes so great. I mean, where their husbands are losing jobs because their families were in the oil industry, the petroleum industry for generations, they start getting sick um, because of the stress. And that's where the concept of toxic stress uh, comes into play. And that's what we want to prevent is that how can we intervene early to help them deal with or ameliorate or just lessen that stress so it doesn't reach that level where they start getting literally physically ill. So schools have to figure out ways to support teachers too. Here's Pamela. You have teachers who may lose their homes and what uh, measures and protective measures can the school system put in place for that potential reality occurring as well? and how you know we need all adults in the school system, a whole, all hands on deck approach, because there's, they're gonna need to support one another. There may need to be a tap in, tap out, um, and how we prepare for the realities that many of the adults um, may experience as well, and, and give them some grace around that. Carolyn, you've you've covered traumatic events in California. What you know, can you share some of some of what you've covered in the past and what you've seen at schools? Well, one thing that's really struck me over time, you know, looking in Sonoma County in particular, they had a few years there where it seemed like every year they were having, you know, just disastrous wildfires. And the schools really took on a role as the hub of the community. Um these experts I interviewed said that I think in any given community, 70% of the population has some kind of connection to the local school. Either they went there themselves or their kids go there or they work there or a family member works there. And so a school is probably one of the most trusted government agencies in any community. And it can play a key role in helping a community not only cope with the trauma, but come together afterwards. Um, For example, in Sonoma County, uh, you know, the schools became hubs for, you know, families dropping off clothing and, and supplies for other families who had lost their homes, for example. These experts talked about in New Orleans that the schools, you know, the gymnasiums in some cases became places where whole families would, would stay until they could kind of get back on their feet again. You know, and they said, too, that, you know, in a lot of cases, the most important service that a school can provide during a big disaster is a sense of normalcy and routine. You know, for a lot of kids, it's a huge relief to, you know, just focus on something, you know, like learning how to read (laughs) instead of, you know, whatever trauma is happening at home. You know, to be surrounded by adults who have a plan and who care about you and who are calm and there's a plan in place. They said that can be very reassuring for children, especially who are going through really traumatic events. Marlene says that the many wildfires in recent years have offered lessons for schools, She worked with a school district in Oregon that was directly impacted. What they realized was that they needed to be prepared to have hybrid models of education. That in the absence of a a building, which may be destroyed or may be in an area of danger, um, their teachers have to be trained to be able to interact, create new rituals, classroom routines, uh, ways of reaching out to children, ways of reaching out to parents, breaking up the school day with transition periods. Many of these children lost everything. 
You know, they didn't have much to begin with, especially uh, this one um, school district that I worked with. They had a lot of migrant workers. Uh, they didn't have much to begin with, but they lost everything. There was no place to rent. Uh, all their belongings were burned. Um, and they needed to be prepared to create partnerships where NGOs like Red Cross, they, they should be prepared with, with contracts and be ready to have centers where these where these families and these children can get what they need in survival terms, you know, food uh, and clothing and shelter. Um, often schools, the gymnasiums during these, in, in the aftermath of, of such a disaster, especially earthquake country in LA, the, a lot of a lot of the community came into our high school gymnasiums and Red Cross set up just cots, hundreds of cots and people stayed there, lived there until they could uh, find family members who could take them in or find other alternative places to live. Carolyn, how are students affected when there are traumatic events in their communities? Well, trauma in general, I mean, whether it's, you know, whether it's gun violence or it's, um, you know, a wildfire can lead to, for anybody, kind of long-term depression and anxiety. And for kids, that often means inability to concentrate and to focus because they're distracted, obviously, about, you know, things that are going on in their in their lives. And that can lead in turn to disengagement from school. I think there's a lot of studies that show that, you know, attendance can drop way off. And then the more school you miss, the more behind you are, then the more disengaged you get. I think long-term, what they see is, you know, higher dropout rates. And then, of course, without a high school diploma, you're more likely to be unemployed. I think there's a you know pretty direct link with incarceration. Behavior problems too, which can lead to um, suspensions, expulsions, and so forth, and more missed school. So the, the, the long-term repercussions can be acute. Carolyn, did anything surprise you when you were reporting this? Yeah, a few things surprised me. One is they mentioned a study from the Pew Research Center that came out recently that showed that gun deaths among children are up 50% just in the past two years. I think... You know, if you factor in climate change, you know, and weather-related disasters related to climate change and the uptick in violence uh, post-pandemic and during the pandemic, I mean, we're seeing just this double whammy of potential uh, disasters that could affect children. And um, I think it's something that schools do really need to start paying urgent attention to. You mentioned um, having more mental health counselors, just teachers being on the front lines, kind of being um, first responders in a way. But we are hearing a lot about, you know, teacher shortage, counselor shortage in California in many school districts. And I know school districts are trying to add counselors and trying to grow the number of teachers that they have. But do you think that California and California school districts are ready to really get involved in this way? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point, you know, with the budget constraints and so forth, especially that we expect to see in the next couple of years. I think even the most well-intentioned districts are going to be struggling to hire all the counselors they need. But a lot of districts, I mean, there are workarounds. You can contract with local nonprofits that provide counseling and mental health services. There's uh, efforts now to kind of streamline the Medi-Cal uh, process. So uh, county health departments can provide counseling services, sometimes, you know, right there on the school campus. So there are efforts underway. And also, you know, training teachers, giving teachers just a little bit of extra training on really simple, easy things you can do in the classroom 
um, to help kids cope with this stuff. And, you know, some schools have tried um, things like having a, you know, they call it a calming room or a, a room on campus where students can go and just kind of mellow out for a while. And there might be a counselor staffed in that room, sort of on a drop-in basis. And that's a pretty cost-efficient way to just kind of help, you know, every little bit helps, I think. I asked Marlene and Pamela, are California schools doing enough? Well, I worked for the Los Angeles Unified School District for over 30 years. And I can say to you that we originated many of these psychological first aid, first crisis teams in the country, first threat assessment teams in the country. And I can say, even though I have been away from LA Unified School District, they have continued to keep the child as the center of their concern and every aspect of that child. You know, they really do uh, implement the whole child approach. So yes, there are school districts who do do that. And there are school districts who still believe, I'm here to teach a subject. That's my job. But they forget that in the process of legitimately trying to establish the professionalism, the professional teaching uh, role, they forget that the guiding principle from the beginning of compulsory education is in local parentis, that during the day, as long as those children are in school, that the teachers and every adult in the school serves the child's needs in place of the parent. And I'll say, I mean, I am very proud of California in a lot of ways, as I do think we're a leader in a lot of areas. And I do think California has an emphasis on child mental health. And, you know, we, our former Surgeon General, Adverse Childhood Experiences was really her central focus. And so we're lucky in that way. And I know a lot of districts are are reallocating or attempting to allocate more money for school social workers and school mental health providers. And and we do need to get our ratios up, but that, that emphasis is there. What I would stress is that the only disconnect that I still see is it doesn't necessarily have to be the mental health provider that can be that supportive adult. And I think that's the message that some schools are still missing. So these soft skills, training in psychological first aid, training um, in other kind of whole child techniques is really where we can continue to buffer a lot of support around students when we don't have the ratios we need of a mental health provider. It's not about a degree. Mm -hmm. It's about the power that you have to support children both in a response to a crisis and in recovery and in healing. That's what true prevention is. Trauma is a big issue. How do you help the children? But like my grandmother, who every bad thing happened to her, she was the most joyful woman I knew. And she had such a wonderful sense of humor. She's the optimistic role model that risk factors are not predictive factors. And that everyone of us as adults who work with children have the power to be that protective factor in any child's life. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Education Beat, Getting to the Heart of California Schools, a production of EdSource. You can find Carolyn's story at edsource.org. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Special thanks to our guests, Marlene Wong and Pamela Vona, and to our reporter, Carolyn Jones. Our CEO is Ann Vasquez. 
Our theme music is from Blue Dot Sessions. This episode was brought to you by the California Endowment and the Stewart Foundation. I'm Zadie Stavely. Join us next week and subscribe so you won't miss an episode.